Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on June 21st, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... We always wonder how tiny we are compared to the vastness of the universe. But that's because we compare ourselves in the three dimensions of space. But now think about the four dimensions of time. There we're not tiny at all. Our entire heritage goes back to those microbes which existed here four billion years ago. That's Dimitar Sasolov. He's professor of astronomy at Harvard and the founder and director of the Harvard Origins of Life initiative. He's also the author of the new book, The Life of Super-Earths, How the Hunt for Alien Worlds and Artificial Cells Will Revolutionize Life on Our Planet. He was in New York City recently and dropped by the Scientific American offices. You've been quoted as saying that biology is the future of astronomy. So let's start there. What does that mean? Biology is the future of astronomy for two reasons. One is that, as a science, biology studies life on Earth, but we are already looking for life on other planets, even Mars, if you will. And uh, going to other planets is the domain of astronomy. But there is a deeper sense in what I'm saying. The big question about um, what is our place in the universe and its scientific approach to it comes down to a major shift which we're experiencing right now. That shift is from the question being mostly astronomical. Are there any other places that are suitable for life, other planets, to becoming now mostly biological? How does life start to begin with? What is life in a bigger sense? not just here on Earth. And from that point of view, the shift is from the uncertainties in astronomy now to understanding the biology. And so the two are coming together in where the future of this universe is probably a biological future. Is that because we are just inherently interested in the question of whether there's life out there, or is there astronomical information that you as an astronomer find especially interesting because of the biological aspect? Of course we're interested in what is going on there because we are part of the phenomenon. But that's exactly uh, the point. It's not only that. There is a deeper deeper, uh, point here. And the deeper point is that let's look from the point of view of the stars the astronomical view of this. 4% of this universe is ordinary matter. We are made of ordinary matter. The stars, the galaxies, the planets are made of ordinary matter. And if you look at the history of the universe, it's the transition from a very mechanistic state in which you only have hydrogen and helium in a very um, unorganized uh, pattern in the early universe, which we observe, forming galaxies, stars, and planets, and then some planets forming complex chemistry to the point what we have here on Earth. So if you then project that into the future, and we in astronomy can do that, we can see a universe which goes on for much longer than it has already passed, essentially not changing significantly in any other way. You know, you'll have galaxies, you'll have new stars, new generations of stars, you'll have even more planets around those stars and in those galaxies. But there is one thing which is going to be different. And that thing which is going to be different is thanks to that evolution of matter, of those 4%, 
which allows for complex chemistry. More and more of those uh, elements in the table of the elements are produced by stars. More and more planets have the rocky structure that we see here on Earth. And more and more of those planets become living. So if you think about the future of the universe, there is also a transition from purely astronomical stars and galaxies to a future which is uh, biological planets and living planets in particular. So those 4%, which seem so insignificant as a whole in the universe, are really driving the exciting change, exciting changes in this universe, as opposed to the dark matter and dark energy, which really from the perspective of what we know about them right now, do almost nothing. You, you sound almost to me deterministic in the sense that if the, if the universe is evolving in a particular way so that the chemistry changes to a particular way, statistically, there's going to be life out there. Is that? In a certain sense, that's exactly what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. What we can say deterministically is that the future of the universe is that of more chemistry and more complex chemistry. Simply because of the trend of the transformation of hydrogen and helium, which do nothing by themselves chemically, through the stars, which are the objects in this universe that transform them into heavy elements, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, metals, and so on. That is the trend. We have a trend from zero of those complex uh, chemicals to more and more in the future. And as we see today, we're in the beginning of that evolution, not somewhere in between or towards the end of it. So the universe has just started producing chem chemically rich environments. So that much we know. The part which we don't know, and that's why I was saying that's the future uh, of astronomy is in biology, is what does it take for that chemistry to become so complex that it has the features of Earth life? And even the subject which I didn't even talk too much about, which is what does it take then for that to become intelligent? Mm -hmm. But even if you just try to answer the first question, was it, does it take for chemistry to become life? It is a question which we don't know, but it's the next thing which we are trying to do. Sure. I mean, intelligent life is one thing. But even if you found microbes or evidence of microbes on an exoplanet, that would be the biggest story ever. That will be the biggest story ever, for sure, you... for many reasons. Mm -hmm. And that is practically what we can do today. We can actually look for them. And what compelled me to write this book is to say, look, we know how to do it. We haven't done our homework yet to be sure we'll know it when we see it. But we, we know how to do it. What do we still need to do to be able to identify the signature of life, even microbial life, on an exoplanet? What we know how to do today is we know technically how to do remote sensing. And what this is, is essentially looking for gases in the atmospheres of other planets. We've learned that throughout the 20th century, we can do it very well to very distant objects, stars across the universe, literally. We, we're already doing that. So the question now is, could we detect uh, the same signatures which we see on Earth today and which are due to life, the biosphere? The answer is yes. But isn't that a foolish assumption to say, well, uh, would life on our planets be a carbon copy of life here? Uh, literally probably carbon. Literally carbon. So 
I think that's where we haven't done our homework. There is a lot to be done and a lot to be learned and probably a lot of surprises. But now it is, it is the time to develop that biological aspect scientifically so that we, we are intelligent when we look for those signatures. But technically we can already do it. As a very simple example, if you were able to tell, uh, spectrographically that a planet's a planet had an atmosphere and the atmosphere had a fixed amount of oxygen that to you would be a real red flag i would presume that would be a real red flag if you see an atmosphere which has large amount of free oxygen in combination with say carbon dioxide some water and you would say well why is this oxygen there if there is not enough evaporation of water to produce it with Mm -hmm. before it combines with something else and oxidizes it essentially something must be producing it and it's not volcanoes right so that's how we can find a twin earth somehow a carbon copy as i said of earth and its biosphere right but what if the biosphere is based on slightly different metabolism, which we know now is possible to some extent. We know something about biochemistry to say, oh, that's not the only option that we have there. What if they're methanogens mostly and they produce other gases? Are, are we prepared to actually recognize them? And the answer is, I think, no. Uh, could we do that homework? Sure. People just haven't fessed up to it and done it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that really changed the way I, I was thinking about this problem in your book was your description of the time span of life versus astronomical time. Because we always think of astronomical time in the billions of years and the time scale of life at the most in the thousands of years. But you point out in the book that, no, the time span of life is also in the billions of years. So they're they're not exactly the same time span of the universe and the time span of life, but they're much closer. They're almost a, a younger brother, older brother relationship. Yes, the time scale, and let's call it the time dimension. As we know now in 20th century physics, we live in a four-dimensional parameter space, three dimensions of space and one of time. It is very important to understanding life and its connection to the rest of the universe, in particular the planets. The planetary time scales are those of the stars, and the stars have time scales which are measured in billions of years. Geological processes takes millions of years. Life, it seems to us, takes seconds, hours, weeks, years. But this is life in its individual units. Life as a biosphere has exactly the same duration in time as that of the planet Earth. So in a sense, it is comparable to everything in the universe. And there are two things which I want to say about that. The first one is we always wonder how tiny we are compared to the vastness of the universe. But that's because we compare ourselves in the three dimensions of space. Yes, we are tiny in the three dimensions of space. But now think about the four dimensions of time. There we're not tiny at all. Our entire heritage, who we are, goes back to those microbes which existed here four billion years ago. And that's true for every living thing on this planet. The biosphere is a phenomenon which is really large in the time dimension. 
and comparable to planets and stars. So in that sense, it is a significant phenomenon. The second part is the way we figured out how microbes inhabit the Earth, including below and above, in the atmosphere and below the surface, is that they really self-sufficient in a way in which it's very difficult to obliterate them mm-hmm. totally. So the, the part which we can say is that at least uh, life is as long-living as the star itself. Because, you know, once the planet Earth is engulfed by the dying sun in a few billion years from now, that will be the end of the biosphere. But there is one one um, event that happened and changed that as a potential. Mm-hmm. And that is us going to the moon. So if you look again from with the eyes of an astronomer, just from another star, and look at the planet, you essentially saw a piece of the planet go somewhere else and then come back. You know, and it was not that something hit the planet and pieces just went everywhere. It very deliberately went somewhere and come back. If that is part of the phenomenon which we call life, the ability to actually transcend the point of origin, then you actually transcending also the time uh, constraint which the star gives you. You can be transplanted. You can actually move. And hence, in principle, you can think of life then as a system with potential for eternity. It could last as long as the universe itself. And on a a simpler level, as you point out in the book, let's say the Earth flew out of its orbit and was just passing through the galaxy untethered to a star, the the surface life would all wither away or faster than that. But the, the stuff that's deep down would probably keep going for a good long time. That's a new realization too. In fact, um, all those deep um, biosphere studies have been done literally in the past 10 years. And even up until last year, we didn't know whether it was just microbes and bacteria that inhabited miles below the surface. Uh, but now we know there are even small animals there. Uh, there are worms, but hey, these are animals too. Still multicellular. So, exactly. That's a huge jump. Right, which tells you that the biosphere there may be equal in mass, in totality, to that what we have on the surface. Now, the amazing thing about them is not that they're that deep below the surface. The amazing thing about them is they don't care about the surface. Right. They're completely self-sufficient on the heat of the earth and what is available down there. And frankly, everything is available except sunlight. And so the point there is that whatever happens to the surface, including the sun is gone, as long as the planet is intact, it doesn't get really destroyed inside the star, then the planet has the thermal capacity to keep going for quite a while, and especially if it's a super-Earth, because these are bigger planets and they have a bigger reservoir, so to say. It could go on for the same duration the universe has gone on now, literally. The thermal capacity and the chemical capacity. And the chemical capacity, yes, both of them. Sulfur organisms. They usually are, yes, yeah. So you're bringing up uh, super-Earths. Why don't we define super-Earths for people? Well, super-Earths are just what the name literally stands for. They're uh, planets that uh, are bigger than the Earth, but not much more than uh, a factor of two 
in size, um, not much more than a factor of 10 in mass. Uh, and some of them are likely to have exactly the same characteristics, bulk composition, surface environments um, that our own Earth has. So hence, super Earths. And you, you talk in the book about the importance of tectonic activity and biology and super Earths. And that's a really interesting combination of, you know, we, we often think of life happens on Earth, but life is also affecting the planet and the evolution of the geology of the planet. Exactly. Absolutely. That's the point of the planet itself is a system. Um, I'm sorry I'm using this word a lot, but system in the most generic sense. And life, the biosphere is a system. And those two systems have very many common characteristics and they co-opt each other and they work together as a unit. And in fact, they end up being the same thing. So if you take a planet which is uh, like the Earth, and it could be a super Earth, but the planet which is rocky and has some water or some kind of solvent, liquid solvent near the surface, the way you can imagine it, it's it's a large round reservoir with a lot of heat and chemicals, gases included in its interior, which are moving all the time. But that reservoir has a lid, and that lid is the crust on which we live happily mm -hmm. on our own planet. But now, the important thing about this lid, it's uh, semi-permeable. In other words, it lets gases and chemicals from inside and heat to the surface and to the atmosphere, and then brings down some of those that have already gone through the chemical uh, change and have gotten oxidized, for example, brings them down, recycles them, and brings them back up. This happens without uh, any help from life. That is a simply inorganic, normal geochemical cycle for a planet like this, which can go on for a very long time. And that's essentially, we call it the plate tectonic activity of a planet like this. The plates move around, they get subducted, the volcanoes take stuff out from the inside and it gets recycled all the time. Now, why is this important? It's important because it provides surface environment which is chemically uh, rich. The environment doesn't get stuck to a certain chemical level where you can't make many changes. And life is all about changes, the ability to find energy sources, to transform one chemical to another, and then move on from there and explore different environments. So the planet, having that geochemical cycle, is a system which is just naturally co-opted by a biosphere, which also has its own cycles. And then they work in unison together. So in a certain sense, it's more appropriate to think about the planet being uh, living. Essentially, planet and life are one the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's a fascinating part of the book where you, you, you talk about the scenario. Let's say the atmosphere was stripped away, but we still have plate tectonics and therefore volcanic activity. And within a very short amount of time, I mean, not by a single human lifespan, but what was it, 400,000 years? Yes, about half a million years. You would have a new atmosphere. You will, yeah. Not and an that oxygen is atmosphere. Not an oxygen one, because obviously the oxygen is due to the cyanobacteria and all the living creatures that use sunlight. But the gas will be back. The liquid areas will come back because the water comes from inside the earth. The microbes which lived in the crust would have even noticed that something happened. And some of them eventually will 
end up on the surface one way or another. We'll get used to living and we'll have another cycle of of life and the biosphere again will take over the surface as it has in the past. Because life is really tenacious. Yes. yes. You you talk in the book about uh, the the effect that synthetic biology will call it. You, you call it various things and some of these terms have different meanings within particular specialties. But basically the idea of trying to create a an artificial cell that is, for all intents and purposes, truly alive, how that effort is going to inform the whole field of astrobiology. What's the connection there? This is the most tantalizing part about this field. And uh, in a sense, what made me write this book is the connection between the new developments in biology and particularly what I call chemical synthetic biology and astronomy, this unlikely marriage between the two, which doesn't seem to go necessarily both ways. But that's exactly the point. It does go both ways. It goes from biology to astronomy in the obvious way we already discussed. We need to do our homework and know what we are looking for when we astronomers look for signatures of life on other planets. But it goes the other way to inform what we should be doing in the labs. And that's the part which I want to uh, tell you about now. The way it goes uh, from astronomy to biology is that the question about the basic chemistry and what is the nature of life has remained unanswered throughout a 100 years of working with modern molecular biology. And the reason it has remained unanswered is because we've never had the ability to do the kind of experiments or tests we've been able to do in chemistry, physics, and astronomy. You have a system in which you're trying to understand what are the basic rules, and you push it left and right and see how it fit, it reacts back, the feedback mechanism, so to say. In biology, you don't have the luxury of that. Even the simplest microbes, the simplest biological systems, the simplest biological biochemical cycles very complex, as we realize. They have a heritage which goes millions and sometimes billion years back, which we still don't understand. It is real heritage. In fact, that's the beauty of life, because it remembers all the geological trials and tribulations of the environment. It uses them in different ways. It's kind of a very complicated software system. But what it means, we can't really understand what is the basic operating system of that uh, software system because we can't push it left and right and have a veritable feedback. So what synthetic biology is trying to do for this fundamental question is to create a chemical system which has the basic functions of what we call life but has gotten rid of all the other complications. A very, very simple sim cell, cell which is called technically the minimal cell or artificial minimal cell, which is chemistry that does what life does, you could say mimics what life does, but can be subject to those experiments. So you can see how the different planetary environments will make the system go sulfur as opposed to carbon. You could see how the changes in the temperature on that other planet would make uh, the choice not towards DNA, but say GNA, 
another molecule which looks like DNA and could be a genetic molecule, but is not in Earth life. So these are the kind of experiments which this new field, chemical synthetic biology, is allowing us to do now. And that is the connection where they're looking for the initial conditions, as we say, for that input from those new planets in order to experiment with their um, lab um, setups. So that's, that's, that's the very unusual synergy between astronomy and biology that has happened in the last couple of years. And one of the people you talk to about this is Jack Shostak, who won the Nobel Prize last year. And we had him on the podcast a few years ago. And he's really one of the foremost people in in that field of trying to tease out what the origins of life on Earth were or what they could have been. I mean, part of the problem is the place is so teeming with life now that the the origins are, are uh, washed out. The, the signal to noise is just not big enough anymore. So what is what is that like when you are together just chatting about this problem? Um, this project started really uh, with us chatting about that and saying, well, there is something which can be done about this. Jack was excited about the exoplanets that we were discovering and the direction in which we were going, where we were going to do chemical analysis of those different planets. And um, he realized exactly that, that if we only stay with the initial conditions that we have here on Earth, we are not going to be able to do in the lab the experiments that might be interesting and tell us something about what is important and what is less important. That is, this is essential to life while this is due to the environmental conditions. So that was what he was looking for. And I was looking for the homework that I mentioned before. I was going in the direction of looking for those biosignatures. And I knew I was fooling myself that I knew what I was looking for. So I needed somebody to tell me what about those other gases? What about these other um, uh, possible signatures? So that is the synergy that I'm talking about. Um, now, technically speaking, what uh, uh, Jack Shostak and his lab have managed to achieve in the past few years is that they've managed to uh, create very simple cell-like structures, empty, but having the membranes which are necessary for chemical concentration and which are crucial to create a minimal cell, that chemical system, which I call artificial chemical uh, cell. So the project is to synthesize the necessary molecules and put them into Jack's uh, little bubbles, those little empty cells, and watch them uh, operate as a chemical systems, not very different from a living cell. Because they they can function like a cell, given the membranes that he managed to create. So technically, this is really the direction in which um, the project is going. It's, that's why I'm so excited about it, because it's it's looking that it's going to happen. And then when the biologists come up with different possible scenarios for how life could be, then you can tune your instruments different ways to look for alternatives to Earth-like life on exoplanets? That's exactly what I'm uh, 
hoping for that when the biologists have those uh, experiments in the lab, they'll say, hmm, you know, these superers, which are sulfur cycle planets as opposed to carbon cycle planets, you shouldn't be looking for oxygen there. You should be looking for hydrogen sulfide in this kind of concentrations. So I'm going to look at those superers and going to tell them there is a whole gallery of chemical uh, uh, signatures from those. And we see that the sulfur dioxide to carbon dioxide is those ratios. What would you do in your lab? They go to their lab, look at these um, uh, um, artificial cells with which you can experiment. And they say, well, the metabolism will go in this di different direction. So the gases that will really be mostly out in the atmosphere, probably those other ones. And then I go to the telescope and look for those. So that is uh, the view of the near future for the science that I'm trying to do. You really need those telescopes to be in orbit. You can't do this with earthbound telescopes. That's always true. Um, when we uh, need to uh, see further away and see tinier signals, uh, going in space uh, is always better for a telescope. You avoid all the problems with the atmosphere. There is a second uh, problem with our Earth atmosphere when you're looking at other Earth-like atmospheres. Well, you're looking through the same uh, portfolio of molecules, aren't you? So essentially already their signatures are imprinted on the light that comes from that dif distant one. So you have now to tease out not only the signal, weak signal from its star and the other planets, but your own planet. So right. it always helps um, to go in space. However, it is not always uh, absolutely necessary. There are some tricks one could do in which the two spectra are displaced from each other. And the truth is, as much as we can do great things in space, the biggest telescopes are always going to be on the ground. It's just a matter of scale. And so there are a lot of things you will be able to do with the next generation of uh, large telescopes. So we're already planning for that as well. So I would say it's a combination of both, doing some of the science from ground-based telescopes and some with the next generation of space telescopes. One of the really interesting uh, notions that, that you put forth is that, you know, the only planet we know of that has life, obviously, we're sitting on. But this might not be the best planet for life. There might be super-Earths out there that are even better for life to have come into being and diversify on. It just happened that in our own solar system, the Earth is the largest rocky planet. Uh, maybe there was a rule which would tell you that this is how it should be and our solar system is just an example of how other solar systems are. Now we know this is not true. Now we know that uh, planets which are rocky but bigger than the Earth are plentiful. They're around other uh, stars in big numbers. So what happened in the solar system is that, well, there was no super-Earth that formed. Or you could say one formed and that's the Earth. Venus and Mars are smaller. And now we know a lot about Venus and Mars. And we certainly know that if you're smaller than the Earth, a lot of things go wrong. Uh, your climate is less stable. Your atmosphere can go away, like Mars. Uh, plate tectonic activity and chemical enrichment goes away as well. Mars had huge volcanoes, but they stopped. Why? Because it lid got too thick and it stopped fairly early on. Never had plate tectonics. 
So it chemically stuck on the surface. So when you look at all those things and you say, well, the earth is great. And sure, it is great. Everything works. But if you're a little bit bigger than the earth, all those things are the same or even better, more active, more chemistry, more stability, and nothing is worse. I mean, that you have a little bit higher G, that's not a big deal, especially for the microbes. Mm -hmm. the, the planets concentrate the, the chemicals and then life concentrates the chemistry. And, uh, and, he, and here we are, the Precisely. ultimate distillation. Precisely. I mean, a, a, a piece of rock is essentially a crystal in equilibrium. Applied like the Earth is a huge crystal, which is not an equilibrium over timescales, which are comparable to this timescale of the universe. And so that's where life comes to be. That much we know from astronomical perspective. What we don't know is the biological aspect of it. What exactly is the nature of it? And that's where we're going next. So why do you say that this completes the Copernican revolution? I say that it completes the Copernican revolution uh, for two reasons. One of them is just an obvious and trivial one. Copernicus really uh, brought back the ancient idea that the sun is in the center and that the earth is just a planet like the other six they knew at the time. So when he did that and when his followers figured out uh, the orbital motion of the planets and all of that, the logical thing was to say there must be similar planets and planets like the Earth around the other stars, which are just suns, like our own sun. It was obvious to everybody, but it was never proven. And you could imagine many ways in which maybe this was not the case. Even without 20th century science, although nobody doubted it, there was no evidence that there are planets like the Earth or even any planets around other stars. So in a sense, trivially speaking, it does close the chapter. You say, okay, so the revolution started back then. It took 500 years for us technologically to be able to say, yes, the other stars have planets and planets like the Earth also form. End of story. It is also nice in a way that, and I think that's a coincidence, that this technological ability that we have to complete the Copernican chapter is also the same one that made us globally aware that we live on a planet where we understand that we are part of a biosphere and that this planet is really uh, an entity of which we are part of. And somehow to turn now to the next chapter, which is, let's call it the biological revolution, to understand the nature of that aspect of what Earth is about. Would you bet that we'll have incontrovertible evidence of life on, a, on an exoplanet in your lifetime? I would bet. And you know why? Because this is what I'm actually doing as a scientist. So if the bets were wrong, <laughs> yes, uh, I wouldn't be even trying. I, I have many other projects which I can do. Um, I think, to be serious about it, I think we have a fair chance to do that. And again, we have the technology to do it, so we have to try. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, it is a journey. It is a journey in the sense that 
you learn so many things along the way. And so many of them give you new insights about the world. So many of them give you practical things which you can use in your daily life. This is exactly one of those things in science. So it is fundamental science. It looks like a pie in the sky. But along the way, you learn so much. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the section on citizen science. You'll find research projects that you can take part in. For example, if you're an astronomy enthusiast, the folks at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, can use your talents as part of the Lowell Amateur Research Initiative. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.